My name is Ernie. I'm not one of the regular uh, speakers here, so I just want to thank you for, uh, for joining us here. Uh, Sunday mornings are awesome. How many of us believe that we can think about nothing? Now, I know some people claim to. You know, when you ask your teenage son, what are you thinking about? His answer is nothing, right? Or guys, maybe you're riding along in the car with your wife, maybe after a bit of a disagreement, and you say, honey, what are you thinking about? And she says, nothing. That's kind of code for nothing you want to hear me say right now, so just let it lie, right? If we have any, uh, is it really possible to think about nothing, though? Let, let's try it out, okay? Just as an experiment here. On the count of three, we're all going to think about nothing. Are you ready? Three, two, one, go! Nothing. How was success? Not too good. I'm, I'm going to help you out here. You know, I'm actually going to tell you what not to think about, okay? So we'll switch it up here a little bit. I'm going to tell you not to think about a savory T-bone steak on your barbecue right now. That's not fair, is it? Okay, I'm, not, I'm going to tell you not to think about a white bunny rabbit with pink polka dots riding a skateboard. And there it is! It's crazy! Don't think about it, though, right? The, the, the reality is, even when we seek to turn off our brain, either watching TV, maybe doing some yard work or, or um, some exercise, something, we're just changing from one source of input to another source of input. Ray Pritchards tells us that did you know that the average person has 10,000 thoughts every day? That works out to be 3.5 million thoughts a year. And if you live to be 75, you'll have over 260 million different thoughts. Already, most of you had had over 2,000 separate thoughts since you got out of bed this morning. You'll probably have another 8,000 before you hit the sack tonight. And then you'll start all over again tomorrow. Every one of those 10,000 thoughts represents a choice you make, a decision to think about this or to think about that. For centuries, even dating back to ancient Egypt, man has tried to understand and influence the working of the human brain. Through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance period, by dissection and experimentation, scientists determined that the behavior of the body is a result of stimuli in the brain. In the 1800s, the role of electricity in our brain and nervous system were explored. The invention of the microscope allowed for more sophisticated study of the physical brain. In the 20th century, we saw expansion in the field of neuroscience and neuroplasticity that recognized the brain changes the way it operates and communicates within the body throughout a person's lifetime. We now have science believing that we can download the brain into a computer or, or a computer into our brain and, and reprogram our actual thoughts and therefore the actions of an individual. Modern-day psychologists, behavioral specialists, or motivational speakers teach people how to program the brain or reprogram it. Where this all leads, I don't know. But there's no doubt that the importance of the physical brain and how it's programming memory and thoughts impact the life and the well-being of an individual is undeniable. Well, 2,000 years ago, before modern medicine, before modern-day psychiatry, the Apostle Paul wrote about the importance of programming the brain, not for health and wealth, but for the fully enjoying the life God desires for Christians. The book of Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote while under house arrest in Rome. He's been arrested, detained, chained to a Roman guard, and that's kind of the setting for him as he writes this. So we're working through the book of Philippians. Our passage today is Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. 
It's on the screen behind, or you can turn to that New Testament. Philippians 4, verse 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have heard, pardon me, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's just pause to pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, what was spoken 2,000 years ago, Lord, is still applicable today. Let's pray you open up our hearts and minds to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul starts verse 8 with finally. Now, it's not because finally, let's finish this thing up, you know, it's lunchtime. Um, no, but rather finally, or because of what we've just covered, here is a summation. This is where what I've already been talking about is leading to. And he addresses his brothers and sisters, so he's obviously speaking to believers or followers of Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, um, you're not even sure about all this God talk or if it's just a bunch of garbage, um, I'm thank you for being here today. And if, I just hope that, uh, that there's something I say here today that can help you in your life as well. Our outline this morning will follow just three basic ideas. It's going to be our thoughts, our actions, and God's promise. So let's start off with our thoughts. Paul here is speaking to believers, and what does he say? He identifies a list of things that we should think about. I'd like you to participate with, with me on this list. So let's go through this list together. I'm going to say it. I'd like you to repeat after me. Okay, here we go. He says, whatever is true, please say true. Whatever is honorable, say honorable. Whatever is lovely, say lovely. Whatever is commendable, commend, excellent. If there's any excellence, say excellence. If there's anything worthy of praise, say worthy of praise. If there's anything funny, say funny. I, it is funny, actually. That's not actually there. I just threw it in there to see if you're paying attention. But it should be. You know? anyway, but it, think about these things, he says. Now, here are some definitions you know, that are kind of in our context today for some of these words. True, we can say that is what Scripture says. Honorable things that help us live, out, live life morally. What is right? That which matches up with God's holiness. What is pure? Well, that which is clean and wholesome. What is lovely? Well, it's sweet, generous thoughts that are beautiful to God. What is admirable? Respectable in the eyes of God and his people. What is excellent? Actively seeking to think as well as we can, not settling for mediocrity. What is worthy of praise? Again, the idea here is to ask, can this thought be praised by God? And he says, think about these things. Well, other translations use the word dwell on these things. Dwell on them. Think about them. Think on dwelling. You know, it's not a fleeting observation. This isn't a kind of a, a one kind of a happenstance thing in life. Oh, yeah, that was cool. Off we go. No, this is identifying in our life and the world around us things that are worthy of praise. But, but why? Why does it matter what I think about or dwell on? You know, I think we would generally agree that our actions flow from a thought that we have in our mind. Now, rarely do we do something and say, wow, that was a surprise. You know, no, not really. Even then, right, my brain had to communicate to my hand to slap my face. That, by the way, is my technique for staying awake on the Trans-Canada parking lot when I'm commuting. But anyway, 
And this is especially true with patterns of destructive behavior. You know, that behavior that we hate doing, perhaps it's losing your temper. Maybe it's getting in bad relationships. Maybe it's poor financial decisions. Maybe something really personal like viewing pornography online or having an affair. We're embarrassed. We're shamed. We say, we're never going to do that again. But we just can't seem to kick it. You know, sometimes we make a mistake and we say, you know, oh man, I just wasn't thinking. But if we made the same mistake more than once, twice, or a few times, we can't use that excuse, can we? Generally, we, can, we think of something, we have a thought or an idea, we let it simmer a bit, sometimes years or months, sometimes days, or if an impulsive young man, maybe about two seconds, and then we act on it. Sometimes the results are good, sometimes not so good. A few months ago, my wife Tamika and I were able to spend a few days down in Southern California. I had to fly some people down there for meetings uh, with my work, and Tamika was invited to join. Now, Tamika and I actually are going through some pretty stressful times right now, and, and so getting away wasn't going to solve our problems, but my desire was that we could just escape for a couple of days. So our first night in California, we check into the hotel. We wanted to get some munchies. We spotted a, a Ralph's grocery store. There's a short walk away. So we walk out of the hotel. Separating us from the Ralph's grocery store is a six-lane roadway. You know, three this way, three that way. The crosswalk for that was about a block that way. Not real. You know where I'm going with this, right? So with about two seconds of thinking, I spring into action. I say, Tomiko, let's go. So we made it across the first three lanes of highway and up onto the narrow median. I'm thinking this is awesome. And Tomiko thinks this is the stupidest, dumbest thing. I hate you. Well, there's three lanes to go. So we dash across one lane, two lanes, three lanes and up onto the curb. And it all would have been awesome had Tomiko not yelled, I dropped my cell phone. And me being the dummy, why weren't you holding on to your cell phone? Right? Well, I look, I saw it there. So with instinctively, I go to jump back on the roadway. She grabs me by the shoulder. The car zips by. Zoom. Well, the car missed me, but it didn't miss her cell phone. So I watch almost in slow motion as the front tire runs over the one side of the cell phone. You see it flip up. And the rear wheels run over it again. I checked for traffic this time, and I zipped out to retrieve her phone. I knew at that moment that my chance of surviving this next few days with my wife would depend on the next few seconds as I looked at that phone. You know, perhaps it would have been good had that car actually hit me. Like, Tomiko's life is on that phone, right? Con phone, contacts, pictures, emails, texts. That's her life. What would be the result of my impulsive action? Was there even a 50-50 chance for survival? Anyway, my heart jumped for joy when I hit the home button and her screensaver came to life. My impulsive action was saved by the OtterBox Defender. <laughs> bottom line, bottom line is our actions will flow out from decisions in our mind even if it's a fast one. These thoughts can come from good habits or often, given we are living in these mortal bodies, these thoughts lead to bad habits or sinfulness. Our living well, our making good decisions, always begin as a battle in the mind. To begin to see victory in the mind, we are called to renew it, to reprogram it. And let's see this list of worthwhile thoughts that Paul lists here. This is kind of the code to reprogram our brains. In Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewal of her mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Renewing our mind will transform us. Renewing our mind allows us to start to see things, see people, see the world, and see ourselves the way that God sees. God looks at us and he sees this precious child. I knew you before I created the world. I knew you when you were before birth. Some of us look at ourselves and we see failure. We see fat. We see ugly. We see pervert. Our minds can be so full of anxiety, worry, lust, greed, envy, and garbage. It's, it's pretty tough for us to see the things that we, that God might. This list of things that we are to dwell on, these virtues to think on, is a, is a pretty good description of the gospel, isn't it? I think that's what Paul is getting at here. This list is meant to send us to biblical truths. Is the gospel message true? Is the gospel message noble? Yep. This renewal, this reprogram, is only effective as what we are renewing with. Now, this particular list of virtues specifically deals with us dwelling on the truths contained in Scripture. John MacArthur writes uh, regarding this passage, he says, Paul's call for biblical thinking is especially relevant in our culture. The focus today is on emotion and pragmatism, and the importance of serious thinking about biblical truth is downplayed. People no longer ask, is it true, but does it work? And how will it make me feel? Those latter two questions serve as the working definition of truth in our society and rejects the concept of absolute divine truth. Truth is whatever works and produces positive emotions. Sadly, such pragmatism and emotionalism has crept even into our theology. The church is often more concerned about whether something will be divisive or offensive than whether it is biblically true. You know, here at Central, we claim to be centered on the gospel and rooted in the Bible. And if this is the case, then dwelling on these virtues that Paul lays out here should really resonate with us. You know, Paul says, think on these things or, or dwell on these things. Now, now, what if we did an assessment of what many of us would choose to dwell on? You know, there's an awful lot of stuff on TV and other electronic devices that is not true or honorable. Much of what we listen to is not just or pure. Much of what we read is not lovely or commendable. Much of what we choose to speak is not worthy of praise. But hey, you know, you say that program, it's hilarious. The acting is great. The writing is awesome. You know, it's won awards. Let's be a little discerning and ask ourselves once in a while, you know, what message is being communicated? Now, I know this can start sounding pretty legalistic. You know, do this, don't do that. Please don't miss the point I'm trying to make here. Yes, we have freedom in Christ. Yes, we are saved by faith, not by works. But we fool ourselves to think there are not consequences to the choices that we make. We fool ourselves to think there is no effect with what we put into our brains, even if it is socially acceptable. We're being programmed every day by what we're putting into our minds. Few of us live isolated lives. We're engaged with our family. We're engaged in the workplace. We're engaged in community. So we'll certainly have a lot of contrary ideas, images, and material entering our brains. You know, many times we can't control input, but my question is, what do we do during our discretionary time? You know, I'm sure that Paul, among the palace guard, chained to his guard, as a prisoner, he engaged in conversation with everyone who would listen, and he was exposed to and interacted with many contrary thoughts, words, and ideologies. And yet here he is, able to write this letter, claiming to be at peace, and then he tells us how to as well. It's not that he wasn't aware of destructive ideas and content around him. He just didn't dwell on it. Instead, he chose to dwell on the virtues 
of God's truth. Betty Sashelli writes, Two thoughts cannot occupy the, the mind at the same time. So the choice is ours, whether or not our thoughts will be constructive or destructive. You know, I realize there are many po other positive things we can think about in life that we can dwell on that aren't specifically biblical truths. One of my favorite reminders of this comes from uh, James 1.17, where, where James writes, Every good and perfect gift is from above, flowing down from the Father of heavenly lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Here James recognizes anything good in this life is a gift from God. Your children, a gift from God. Our enjoyment of the trees, the flowers, the mountains, the rivers, these are gifts from God. The aroma of fresh-cut grass, gift from God. Our animals, like horses and dogs, gifts from God. Now, some people may even argue that cats are a gift. <laughs> Let's not take this too far. All right. But these gifts are not exactly what Paul is speaking about in this passage. These things are lovely and to be enjoyed, but they're not tied specifically back to the truths of God's word and the gospel message. You know, enjoying a beautiful sunset, although worthy of praise, and a divine creator doesn't remind us that it is by grace that we've been saved through faith, for example. Or going, going for a hike allows us to be thankful for these fantastic bodies that we've been given, but it doesn't necessarily remind us that God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's back up a little bit. In the previous verses, Paul tells us the what about Christian living. And last week, Pastor Chris uh, preached on this topic. He said, be anxious about nothing, but in all things, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you see the connection? Do you see now how he says in verse 6, connects here with verse 8? He tells us not to be anxious, uptight, stressed out. I mean, anxiety is a state of the mind. It's in our thoughts. And then here in verse 8, he tells us the how. The way this will happen is through the renewal of our mind, by thinking and dwelling on the right things. I want to draw your attention to the way Paul writes here. You know, Paul doesn't say here, you know, don't watch the Game of Thrones or, or, or surf porn online or verbally abuse your kids. Don't disrespect your wife. Don't cheat on your taxes. Don't be egotistical. You know, don't be prideful or celebrate in other people's misfortune to make you feel better about yourself. No, now, I might suggest some of these things, but Paul doesn't do this. Instead, he identifies actually what we should dwell on. In this passage, Paul doesn't write the list of don'ts. He writes the list of do's. I wonder why. How many of you have ever taught your kids maybe to shoot a bow and arrow or maybe a rifle? And here you are, probably shadowing over your kid, your hand's on the weapon, how much time do you spend at this time, you know, saying, you know, kids, you know, don't shoot the ground or don't shoot the house or don't shoot your sister. You know, these kind of things are covered kind of in the, in the general safety briefing, right? But when you're actually teaching them how to shoot a target, what do you say? See, there it is. Aim at the target. Look at the tip of your arrow or the muzzle of your gun and keep it on the target. Paul here is saying, you want to renew your mind? Aim at the target, which is the good news of Christ. As you aim at the target, your focus will not be on all that other stuff. You may be tempted to wander your gaze now and again, but then you're like, oh yeah, back to the target, back to the target, aim at the target. The beauty of the target. You know, I earn a living as a pilot, and uh, over the years I've had a number of jobs. One of the previous jobs I had was working for Con Air, which is an aerial forest fire fighting company. 
One of the primary jobs I held there was training and certifying bird dog pilots. And bird dog pilots, they fly the small aircraft, um, responsible for testing, demonstrating the firebombing runs uh, to the air tankers to ensure safety and accuracy. So before the tanker comes in, as a bird dog guy, you're kind of scoping out the whole area, checking for hazards, checking for whatever, because typically if you're trying to put out a forest fire, you have to get low to the ground. And getting low to the ground comes with some hazards. But you scope it all out and decide, so when the tanker comes in, you know that the line you're going to give him is the best, accurate, and safest way to, to do this. So the tanker comes in overhead, he's observing what you're doing, he's looking down at you, coming overhead, and you fly a pattern. So you might fly, you know, okay, I'm base now, turning final now. I'm on final, I have the target in sight. Three, two, one, bombs away now, target elevation, 1,200 feet, exit straight out. The tanker pilot now has observed it, he's heard it, and he can focus on the line to improve his chances for success. He can focus on the target without the stress of all those hazards all around him. Paul knows that there are many possible pitfalls that believers may encounter. We know that today there are innumerable pitfalls that will lead us sideways. But to best achieve this mind renewal process, let's focus on the things that will keep us on target. As we develop this life habit, the spiritual discipline of dwelling on the truths of Scripture, we'll find that some of those destructive things the anxiety, the temptations, dissatisfaction, greed, hatred, unforgiveness, lust, that used to occupy our minds, they become less attractive. Are they still there? Well, sure, they haven't gone away, but they no longer dominate here. Now, you might be thinking, it's easy for you to say, you don't know my past. You don't know my current struggles. No, I may not. Some of you are likely struggling with very real challenges. But there is hope for mind renewal. You know, our brain has different regions, each responsible for different behavior, thought patterns, and emotions. And carrying the information between these regions are neurons. And these neurons carry the information along neuron pathways. If we have the same actions or thoughts over and over again, these neuron pathways get created, and these neurons get really efficient at taking the same route to deliver information. We get so good at and predictable that we don't even have to think anymore, for good or for bad habits. Well, smart people, scientists, they continue to study the human brain. And a couple of things they now know is the brain continues to grow near neurons and near neuron pathways throughout our entire lives. These, the pathway these neurons fire between, the different areas of our brain, can change all the time depending on the stimuli that we are programming our brain with. It's called neuroplasticity. Now, neuroplasticity, also called brain plasticity, is the ability of the brain to change continually through an individual's life. These scientists have demonstrated that neuron pathways that are strong from certain activities can actually be shut down when stimuli change and new pathways formed. Bad habits, behaviors, or thoughts can be reduced, and healthy pathways or thought patterns created. Now, some of you say, you know, oh, yeah, my programming is deep. You know, there's no way my thoughts can change. I'm permanently anxious. I'm permanently angry. I hate life. It's just the way I am. Oh, really? Imagine for a moment you're having the worst day of your life. You feel lousy. You're behind on your bills. Your daughter needs braces. People at work are gossiping about you. You just had a huge argument with your wife, and your cat just puked on your carpet. You know, and along comes a stranger. And he says, you know, you don't know me. He says, I'm a wealthy businessman, and when I was praying this morning, I heard the Lord tell me to give this to you. And he hands you an envelope, and then he walks away. You open the envelope, discover a million dollars of cash. 
What's your response? It's lousy, right? You said you can't change. No way. You're pretty excited now. Your chin comes up. You breathe deep. You get animated. You're excited. Your shoulders come up. You've just had a true physiological change from this external source. The neurons have just fired in a whole new way in your brain. In this example, free cash, our physiology, the way we think, can have some change in an instant, just like that. We can create lasting change over time if we choose with repetition the right things to program. Do you realize that the gospel, the good news of being condemned but now free, from being destined to eternal damnation to fullness with Christ in heaven is worth far more than an envelope of cash. What Paul knows is as we exercise some habits and choose to dwell on these truths, we can renew our mind with new neural pathways and actually create physiological change. This is the joy that he speaks about numerous times in this letter. All right, so we've talked about our minds. Let's look at our actions. Point two, our actions. So Paul continues in verse 9. He says, What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Learned, received, heard, and seen. You know, Paul was a Christian persecutor. He was redeemed on the road to Damascus. He became an apostle, a missionary, teacher, and now, he cha- and now in chains, he figures he's an example to follow. Was Paul perfect? No. He admits that often. He remembers now as a Pharisee, he persecuted Jews who would dare suggest that this Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He actually had them stoned to death. But he also remembers his conversion, and that's solely by the grace of God. He has spent many years proclaiming the good news. So when he says, I'm an example to learn from, he's speaking of, you know, look at what the grace of God is capable of, and more importantly, look at the target. Look at the beauty of Jesus and the salvation that he provides. I'm sure Paul had many Christian disciplines he followed, such as prayer, fasting, forgiving, dwelling on God's truth, and he cites all these were done in the context of overwhelming gratefulness. All of his actions were a product of a result of the outpouring of the good news of Christ. Just as an aside, Paul says, you know, look at me and practice these things. Well, as moms and dads, are we confident to say, hey, kids, look at me and practice these things, you know, what I watch, how I talk, how I love other people. As Christians in the workplace, are we legitimate to say, hey, look at me, the things that I dwell on, the things you see in me, practice these things. There's something to think about. Paul assumes that these Christians are learning. But learning about something isn't enough. We must receive it, believe it. And then we must practice it. You know, it's been about 10 years since Paul planted the church in Philippi, but he still knows that they remember hearing him speak and saw him living out his life among them. So Paul then says these things you have learned, received, heard, and seen. Practice these things. Practice. How many people here play sports? One. How many people here play a musical instrument? Drive a car? Fly an airplane? How many people here know how to dress themselves? We're getting closer. How about eat spaghetti? There, you know, like all these things require practice. Because we know that practice makes what? Perfect. The better we seek at becoming at something, the more practice we require. You want to be better at experiencing the peace of God? Practice these things. 
When Paul says, use my example and practice these things, do you think he means you know, like Sunday morning between 10.45 and noon? Or practice these things twice a week, kind of, you know, Sunday and life group night? Or maybe he just means practice these things and focus on them when somebody's watching. When an athlete is looking to be more than good, more than great, but is really looking to master a sport, do you think they only think about practice like once a week? No. They're doing something every day. They study, they train, they watch their diet, they ensure adequate rest. It's ever-present in their mind. This is what Paul is speaking to. Our identity in Christ, our seeking renewal of our mind to enjoy the fullness of God, isn't a chore we take on once a week. This is something that is ever-present in our consciousness. As we practice these things, as we choose to focus on these attributes of God and the gospel, what are we promised? Point three, what we're promised is God's promise. He writes, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, he doesn't just say God will be with you because we know that God's always with us. As Christians, what, is, what does Jesus say to his followers? I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. But God has many attributes that can be emphasized or made known to us in different contexts. God of mercy, God of justice, God of goodness, God of grace, God of love. Or in this case, the God of peace. One God, but many attributes. And this God of peace brings order, brings meaning and context despite our circumstances. Ultimately, the God of peace brings reconciliation of men and women to himself. The God of peace brings reconciliation and order into relationships between us, in our families, in our communities. And in our church, one of the greatest needs we have is the God of peace. Now, this isn't a mamby-famby kind of like fake peace like we generally embrace. Excuse me. This isn't a piece that I get after reading a few positive mental attitude books, you know, by Napoleon Hill or Ogmandino or something. Not the positive attitude isn't a good thing. This is the kind of peace that is present despite our present circumstances. You know, our family might be in turmoil. Dad loses his temper all the time. Mom's addicted to Facebook. Johnny's smoking weed and Julie has an eating disorder. You know, like, but the God of peace is still present. What a God of peace promises is I know you live up in a screwed-up world, a world of disorder, a world where you wrestle with sinfulness and struggles. Look to me. Look to a true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, worthy of praise, and I will give you my peace despite the turmoil you are experiencing. We're not promised a perfect life free from challenges. We are promised that as we dwell on these truths of God, we experience the God of peace. Now, many of us try to live our Christian lives, you know, not doing that, not watching that, not saying that, you know, sometimes we see Christians and non-Christians basically involved in the same sinful activities. The only difference is that the Christian feels guilty about it. But the change happening in most people and in their minds deal with earthly battles. The reality is that we are in a spiritual battle. Satan abhors peace. He loves disorder. He abhors what the God of peace provides. Satan loves stress, anxiety. He loves our brains being pulled into different directions. No resolution, no peace, no rest. I realize that bad things happen, sometimes outside of our control and sometimes as a direct result of our own actions. Pain is real. Illness is real. Financial stress is real. Relational stress is real. Problems at work are real. Some of you are in the midst of a battle with cancer. Some of you are in a really bad relationship. Some of us are living out the results of poor business decisions or other financial stress. Some of you suffer from clinical depression or mental illness. I don't pretend to know how difficult that must be. I'm not for a second trying to minimize the impact that living can be difficult, or if we just think happy thoughts, all of our troubles will go away. What I am saying is I believe that the lessons in this book are true, and the promises of God are true. 
You know, am I going to screw up now and again and think lousy thoughts? Yep. Am I going to feel anxiety, desperation, guilt, regret once in a while? Sure. But as I pray for God to show me his promises that are good, true, pure, lovely, etc., and I form spiritual habits of dwelling on these things, the mind renewal will progress. Being able to release my anxieties will become easier. Would you choose to begin the process of renewing your mind? Let's get that garbage out by putting good stuff in. If you think you can make this change in your mind, this renewal process, without changing the programming, you're fooling yourself. If you think that dwelling on garbage won't impact you, you're fooling yourself. If you find yourself excited about those envelopes of cash, looking for peace and happiness there, rather than the fulfillment that's had in the gospel of Christ, and you expect the peace of God, you are fooling yourself. As the band comes up, I'd like you all to participate in just going through verse 8 and 9 one more time. We're going to do it together. I just want us to really think about these words. I'll put it up on the screen, thanks. So everybody together, let's say, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. There is the promise, folks. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God of peace, that you desire that we enjoy the peace that you only can provide. You know, sometimes our minds are, are so full of ideas contrary to your good news that, that it's difficult to sift through. And still in each of us, the desire, the discipline to pursue your truth, to dwell on your truth, so that the garbage in the world will pale in comparison and becomes less attractive to us. Pray for your blessing on each person here. In Jesus' name, amen.